here, uh, hearing about Bolivia makes them seem small, doesn't it? So we're glad we've been able to meet for quite a, almost normally, semi-normally, actually for all but about maybe six, seven weeks last year. So we're thankful for that. Well, let me pray and uh, move into Scripture. Father, we trust and we rest in the fact that you are overseeing all things so that eventually your purposes and counsels to submit all things to your Son, the Lord Jesus, will be fulfilled. And we want to intentionally be a part of that, as Richard was was talking about. Help us to have our eyes cued on you. Uh, Thinking about the return of Christ, uh, Titus, Paul says in Titus that it is that blessed or holy hope, that expectation that we're meant to live with. Help us to get a little bit more of that this morning, in Jesus' name. Well, on a more mundane note, I wanted to start this morning by talking about my wardrobe, and uh, that's a more mundane note, isn't it? Specifically, uh, a suit. I, I'm not bragging, but I am saying I have, I have a suit. I have one suit, and uh, I've had it for several years, and I realized I, I needed a suit. And you know, suits for me, we're not a suit-wearing culture, are we? I'm not sure I even see a sport coat today. We're not a suit-wearing culture, a suit-wearing church. But especially at Keith, thank you. We redeemed Keith Warris Warco. Oh, oh, thank you, brother. We're, we're raised up again. Um, but if you, uh, special occasions, and that would be for me primarily, that's weddings and funerals, isn't it? Weddings and funerals. You need a suit. And so I knew that. And so years ago, I didn't have a suit. Didn't have a suit for decades, literally. Went to buy a suit. And I was measured for this suit. And I picked out what I thought was a handsome, handsome suit, you know. And the guy measures it just for me. I wait while it's tailored just for me. You know, and I get it. And anytime I wear it, I check it afterwards. I get it dry cleaned. It hangs in a special closet down by our bedroom. It's under this plastic dry cleaners wrap, you know, so the dust doesn't get on it between, between uses. But I've got one suit, one suit. It's a special suit. It's made just for me. It's expensive, what was to me expensive, at least at the time. And I'm careful for it, and I'm careful with it. Now, just in the last month or so, I had occasion to wear that suit two times because there were two weddings right here in this building. And, and I might add, two lovely, lovely young couples were... We're getting hitched here, yeah. And on weddings, when uh, Kathy and I usually do premarital, we tell people a couple of things, but one is uh, we're not saving your marriage. Your marriage is between you guys and the Lord. Andrew's heard that, others in here have heard that. What premarital does, we tell them, is it does a couple of things. One is that you, you want to manage expectations. You know, when we, we get married, we think we know that person. We, we get married and live in to, move in together, and we realize, I, I really didn't know that person in significant ways. So one of the things you do is you manage expectations. And the other is you give some tools. You know, wh- what can I do? What, what tools can I add, especially related to communication, so that our communication is as encouraging and positive as it can be and not destructive because that can come in as well. But while you're meeting with that couple, one of the other things you do is you try and get a sense of, is this couple a good fit for each other? Uh, 
it's been said, and I think this is a truism, opposites attract, opposites attract. That's often the case in marriages, opposites attract. And on the front end, that can be a lot of fun. And on the back end, it can be rather challenging because the things that drew you together initially, you can find quite troublesome later as you adjust to that spouse that's not like you at all in some different ways. Some Christian psychologists that manage, do surveys on marriages and relationships, some of which manage dating sites online, have said they believe that it's actually more important that couples are more alike than the opposites attract model because they often, statistically at least, appear to be a better fit for each other. So as couples are getting together and they're looking at marriage, one of the things you're asking is, are they a good fit for each other? Does, does one spouse, potential spouse, are they a good fit for that other? Now, in speaking of my suit or your suit or your special dress, whatever that might be, or a spouse, we could say things like, my suit is tailor-made for me, or my spouse is a great fit for me. We could also use a term that we wouldn't normally think to, and it's this. I could say that my suit is holy for me, and I could say that my spouse is holy to me. And I would be using that term holy in this sense, that that suit or that person has been specially set aside for my use and my use only use, not abuse, you're thinking of spouses, that this person is uniquely mine and I am uniquely theirs. Now, typically when we're thinking of holy, we're thinking of bigger picture holiness like this, belonging to or coming from God, but along the lines we're talking about here, set apart. Holy means to be set apart. Typically, we think set apart for sacred or for God's use, without fault, perfect, righteous, unique. Now we say because God says of himself in scripture over and over again, it's God's most consistently used qualifier of his characteristics. God is holy. God is holy. He's everything he should be. He's nothing he shouldn't be. There's no way in which you can look at God and say he's something less than he should be. He's altogether perfectly who and what God should be. If God was going to marry someone, what kind of spouse would be a good fit for God? What characteristic would, would have to be there if you said God's going to marry this person, what kind of person would they need to be? And we could say, like God, they would have to be holy. They would have to be holy. If God would take a spouse to himself, a person to himself, this holy God would need a holy spouse. We're going to be talking about holiness and God's call to holiness this morning. It's a little bit, I shouldn't say unusual, but it's perhaps something that we either don't talk about a lot or perhaps don't talk about in this frame. And because of that, I want to qualify our use of the term holy here on the front end. I want to adjust our thinking. So... I think the term holy or holiness has a bad rap in our culture, and I would say that's true even in the church, because I think the culture has redefined the thought of holy or holiness as it's a negative. That is, if someone or something is holy, they're a holy roller. It's a pejorative. It's not a positive. It's a negative. And even in the church, even for believers, that term holy may infer something like 
I'm missing out. I'm called to be some rigid, strict version of life that doesn't even appeal to me. And that is not what holy or holiness means, and it's not what we're talking about or inviting anyone into this morning or any other time. It's not a negative, holiness isn't. It's about, and it's less about what we lose than about what we gain in fellowship with God. We want to remind ourselves, or as we interact with others, we want to remind them, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the one who made you able to experience pleasure. And any pleasure we even have the capability of experiencing or enjoying is because this loving, creative God who wants to be in fellowship with us because he made us like himself and gave us the ability to enjoy things in life, that's him. All we can do is corrupt the good gifts he has given. But what he has given is entirely, from God's end, holy. It's appropriate. It's good. So when we talk about holiness this morning, please don't, don't in your mind hear some echo of a loss or a negative or some religious stricture. What we're really talking about is the freedom of laying aside things that keep us from knowing God and enjoying him more fully. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. We don't lose something in holiness, we gain. And your future and mine as a believer in Jesus Christ is to be entirely, perfectly holy. So as we think about life on the earth, we want to get closer to what God's bringing us to, which is conformity to the image of Christ. Jesus is everything he should be, nothing he shouldn't be. And God's work in your life and mine in this lifetime, what we call sanctification, and sanctification just means holy, that process, that's what God's about. He's making us more fully like Christ, ready to see him face to face. This is the 18th lesson in the Mercy Waiting Lessons in Deuteronomy series. We'll talk about, I'm going to walk through, and I hope you have a study sheet, we're going to walk through some of the ways God called Israel, his covenant people, to be holy. Some of the ways, some of the the ways that got worked out. What, what did that look like? How did God call Israel to be holy? What, what did that entail or require? We'll wind down, though, looking specifically at things that are more directly applicable to us in the age of the church. If you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 26, verses 16 through 19, and listen to this language from God through Moses to Israel. Remember, they're getting ready to go into the land of promise. They're under the covenant, they've been there 40 years in the wilderness, and that generation that's living at the time, they're getting ready to go in. Now, as we do, listen, think of a wedding as we read this passage, because what you'll see is this is, this is marital language and imagery. Deuteronomy 26, 16 through 19. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You, speaking to Israel, you have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. That's Israel at the altar. And they've said to God, I do, I will. You know, when you take the wedding vows, one spouse says, this is what I'm committed to. And Israel has said, that's us. We're in. You're our God. And verse 18, and the Lord has declared today that 
You are a people for his treasured possession, as he promised you that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all the nations that he has made, and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. This is wedding language. It's wedding imagery. Israel says to God, you are our God. And God says to Israel, and you are my people. And we're in this covenant together. And Israel has said, Lord, your covenant we will keep. We will obey. It's just like the husband saying, I will love you as my wife. The wife says, I will support you as my husband. Same kind of imagery. Now, to some of the particulars. So here's Israel and God. They're wed as it were. And this is what God says. These are some of the ways in which God says, you're my holy people. And this is what that looks like. So last week, if you remember, we talked about the fact that God loved and valued life so significantly, valued life so highly, that it was God, not men or mankind, that instituted the penalty of death when someone intentionally, and it was intentional, murdered someone else, stole the life of someone else. If you read through Deuteronomy and you read through the other elements of the law, you'll see that it actually God had the death penalty for numerous infractions, always intentional, that brought about this unholy state in his covenant people. So here's an example. Deuteronomy 13.5, God said, Put to death the false prophet who would lead you into idolatry. This was a situation in which some man had stood up. He declared some things that came true. He appeared to be a prophet, but then he turned around and invited Israel to worship idols. So God said, uh, put to death the false prophet. And listen to this language. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So you put to death the false prophet that would lead you away from Yahweh and life into idolatry. And in so doing, you purge the evil from your midst. Now that word purge and that phrase is used 11 times in Deuteronomy. 11 times. Purge comes from a Hebrew word that means to burn, to kindle, to bring away, to eat up. But anyway, you slice it, God was saying, I like to think of a surgeon and cancer. God says, uh, if I had cancer in my arm, melanoma or whatever, the surgeon would cut that cancer out. And he would make sure he got all of it so that it wouldn't end my life. And God says, when you see these things come up in your midst, you are to absolutely excise that out of the nation. The covenant community loses its holiness when you intentionally put up with these, what God called egregious sins against him. So they were purging. The holiness call required them to get rid of sinful elements that left unattended would render them unfit for the relationship they had with Yahweh. It's interesting also, if you just say God put a death penalty on something, you'd say that's severe, that's meaningful, right? That's a big deal, the end of your life. But if you read these passages, you'll see that God required a kind of ruthlessness related to Israel putting away sin. And in fact, it not, only, it not only included the death penalty, but the language God says repeatedly, this is over and over and over, God said in these situations, your eye shall not pity. That person that God called to be put to death, to be removed from the covenant community, 
God says, you shall not pity them. There was something more important than that individual's ongoing life. The covenant community was at stake and the ability of people to continue to interact in a vital relationship with Yahweh was on the line. And so God said, be ruthless. This isn't a time for you to show pity. Now, we know God's merciful, but in these cases, in these situations, he said, don't show any pity. Now, if you move forward, we're moving forward 1,500 years, Matthew 5, 29 and 30, when the God who gave the covenant from Sinai shows up in our humanity and speaks to his covenant people, Israel, living under this covenant, under the law, Jesus brings up very similar imagery there in the Sermon on the Mount. When he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. He said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. In other words, bring to bear this same kind of ruthlessness towards the sin we find in our own lives. Now, this passage is hyperbola, and I have no problem saying that. If you blinded me today, guys, my heart could be as filled with as much lust as it was with two eyes in my head. And if, if I cut off one hand, I can still steal with the other. You remember Jesus said that it's not what goes in us, it's not externals, it's what comes out of our heart that defiles us. But it's this same attitude of having a ruthlessness towards the sin that's in our life. This wasn't corporate here, this was individual. But it's the same kind of thought that you heard from Moses in Deuteronomy about this attitude towards our own sin. You see that same thing in Jesus. Before we move on, How are we doing at being ruthless with our own sin? And I don't mean corporately. I don't mean the church down the block or the family you know or heard of. I just mean us as individuals. How are we doing with being ruthless with our own sin? You guys know we sin, don't we? If if we say we don't sin, we're sinning because we're lying because that's what 1 John says. So we sin. What's our heart towards that? You know, the Puritans uh, wrote a lot about sin, but they also included this perspective. And And again, I think this is what we have to entertain when we think about being holy and the appeal to being holy. The Puritans almost always talked about sin in the context of affections. Affections. You know, biblical counseling, one of the key questions is, why do we do the things we do? And the answer is, because we want the things we want. We sin because we get something out of it. Our affections are somehow tied to those decisions we make. We're choosing to do this sin because we get some temporary pleasure out of it. Well, God wants us to be convinced that when we sin, what we get is less than what we gave. That sin is always cheating us. That we are always getting some element of death. Have you guys ever entertained a sin? And you just said, this is really what I want to do, and you did it. And then moments later or days later, you just say, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? I have stories, and I'm not going to share any of them with you right now along that line. We've done that. What area of my life is contaminated by sin? If I was a surgeon and sin was the cancer, what do I need to cut out, cut off, get away from? What influence? What pulls my affections towards sin and away from God? What do I need to put away? Do we foster the right kind of attitude towards, towards sin 
so that we don't see it as a pleasure to be embraced, but as an evil, as a, and really as a deathly insult to God that robs us of life. It doesn't give us more life, it takes life away. It was the Puritan, I believe, John Owen, who said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So God says, purge, get rid of the evil that's in your covenant community. Now, another area that this, and this uh, comes to bear in the areas uh, God required death for, uh, one of the main areas of life God specifically addressed in Israel's call to holiness was the arena. We would say morality or we would say sexuality, but sexual morality is a big deal then. It's a big deal now, isn't it? Deuteronomy 22, you can turn there if you'd like. I'm just going to mention the text. I'm not going to read it. Verses 13 through 21. The situation is this. A man has married a wife. He's taken a wife and he complains and he says this. I took my wife and I found that she wasn't a virgin. We got married and I thought I was marrying a chaste woman and she's not a virgin. Now, we're not going into all the specifics of this this morning. But the case, it became a case and this was argued. And if it was found, if it was determined that the woman was not a virgin when she was married, she was to be stoned. She was to be stoned to death. In fact, in these passages, one of the, the phrases or the language... God says it's an outrage that's occurred in Israel. That sexual immorality, God called this outrageous act. We don't tend to think of sexual immorality all around us, isn't it? We don't tend to think it's outrageous in God's eyes, but that's one of the qualifiers he used for it. If you go down in that same passage to verses 22 through 24, those found guilty of adultery were to be stone they were to be purged from the covenant community through stoning now of course that is the backdrop that passage is the backdrop for john chapter 8 and the woman caught in adultery and if you remember in that story a woman is caught in the act of adultery brought before jesus the jewish leaders they don't care about her and they don't care about him this is an attempt to entrap jesus and they quote moses and they say, Rabbi, Moses required that this woman be stoned. What do you say? They know Je Jesus is merciful. Jesus hangs out with sinners. So we're going to get him on this. Now, Jesus, that they brought that woman to, he's the one that gave the law. They're not going to trap him in this. So he doesn't disaffirm or disavow the law. He just says, you remember in the story, let the one who has committed no sin be the first to throw a stone. You remember, and then he says, you know, go and sin no more. But that was from this passage. Adultery received the death penalty. Verse 30, sex between close relatives was forbidden. Again, holiness in the context of sexuality. To Deuteronomy's requirements, you can add many more, not only in the book of Deuteronomy, but the other elements of the law. No sex before marriage, no sex outside of marriage, no sex with beasts, animals, God was requiring moral purity in his covenant people. I probably don't need to say this, but sexual immorality is one of the most appealing of sins, and it is also one of the most destructive. Our drive, our desire for sexual pleasure and intimacy is strong physically and emotionally. And guys, we don't have to, this is nothing to feel bad about. We are wired the way God wanted us. This is part of God's gift. 
It is one of God's great gifts to those made in His image, but because it's so powerful a gift, its corruption is all the more damaging. You know, you can take a stick of dynamite and you can create a pathway for a railroad or you can blow someone's house up. The, it's not an issue of power, it's what the power is used for. Sex is a powerful gift, but that power can be used destructively as well. God's mercy warned Israel of the great harm when this gift was abused. And friends, this gift of sexuality and sexual identity, it is just trashed in our culture today. The culture today and the world today has little, little affection, respect, desire for the gift of sexuality and sexual identity that God meant to bless us with. And it is one of the key ways in which we bear His image is that I'm male or female. It's that I'm married and sex is part of marriage or it's not. This is one of the key ways that we bear God's image and it is just being trashed today. Our maleness and femaleness, the expression of those distinct but complementary roles, is part of the expression of God's image. And as the world rejects God and His authority, it's no, it's no question why they reject that portion of our image-bearing role in our sexuality and our sexual identity. God's mercy called Israel and, of course, calls us today to respect God by respecting and appreciating the gift of male and female and the appropriate God-honoring expression of our image-bearing role in our sexual relations as well as our identity as male and female. You can go online to Lion and Lamb's website. Our Lion and Lamb statement of belief has language about these things added because we realized in the culture and the time we live in, we need to say something about that as a church. So we have. God also required holiness in physical purity. This might sound like a stretch, but bear with me. I'm talking about personal hygiene as well as communal cleanliness or sanitation. You know, we've got a few people sitting in the front row today, but very few people will sit in the front row by Mike. And I tell them, I shower in the morning. I have deodorant on. I don't smell bad, but I can't get anyone to sit near me. I don't know. I, I, I still haven't solved that puzzle. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 23. This is describing a situation in which Israel's army is on the move. So they're not at home, they're not in a city, they're not on their farm, they're in the field and they're camping. And in that situation, God required soldiers to go outside the camp with a trowel when they needed to defecate. Verse 14 says this, The Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. Therefore you must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. That God required the army in the wilderness to bury their excrement because it says, God says, it's as if I'm walking in your midst. He's not physically walking in their midst. He says, I don't want to see anything that's less than holy. That their camp was to be clean, that they were practicing a form of sanitation. And this was true. This was true corporately. It was also true privately. You know, one of the things, if you're into archaeology at all, one of the things that archaeologists turn up semi-regularly are called mikvahs. And they were the Jewish, they were in homes. They, they were all over the ancient culture in Israel. 
They were the place where they would practice ritual purity. You would walk down into this pool and you'd bathe. And these were in houses all over Israel because God required personal cleanliness. When the priests served the Lord at the tabernacle, they bathed. They went, you remember, they've got a basin full of water and they bathed. They cleansed themselves. The law provided for personal cleansing, ritual cleansing around women's menstrual cycles, men's nocturnal emissions. You may need to talk to your kids about this later. I don't know. Oozing skin conditions, you name it. God treats all of this. I'm not embarrassed because God's not embarrassed. So I don't mind talking about any of this. God does. But you get the, the, the thought that holiness in Israel included how you kept care of your body. That, that, that cleanliness, personal cleanliness, that corporate sanitation was part of being holy as God's holy people. Uh, years ago, when our daughter Adrienne went to France to study, she went to a lovely college town, Clermont-Ferrand. And I'll never forget, she said, Dad, you wouldn't believe this place. And I'm thinking, that's going to be positive. She said, there is dog do everywhere. She said, you cannot walk in a city park down the street or on the sidewalk. There's dog excrement everywhere. She said, you have to walk around it. You have to avoid it. No one picks it up. Now, guys, France... I, I'm sure there's lovely French people. I'm sure I know there are Christians in France. But France as a culture and a nation absolutely rejected God at the French Revolution. No less than Haiti did at its founding. And they live, they look on this sanitation level, they look like a third world country where the street and the sewer is their means of sanitation. And I say that as this example. For God... The personal and corporate cleanliness had an issue to do with holiness. And so I conclude at some very basic level that your personal hygiene and mine and, and a group's corporate sanitation taking care of things like this is a spiritual issue. It represents something spiritual. You know, this is a little different, but 1 Corinthians 14 related to the meetings of the church Paul wrote, for God, God's not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. We used to tell our girls on their bedrooms. Can you imagine this? Little girls in their bedrooms. We said, hey, guys, your room, Stevie, your room needs to be neat and tidy because God is not a God of chaos. We would quote, quote that to them all the time. God's a God of order. That's why we practice. We're orderly in the way we live. We're orderly in the way we take care of things in our house. Well, along this line, God is not a God of filth and dirt. Now, dirt in the ground, all this, we're not talking. But morally, and then physically applied to us, cleanliness is something that God highlighted as a holiness issue for his covenant people, okay? Filthy living conditions, a lack of personal cleanliness. There's, there's obviously, at, at other times and situations, there's other elements that might uh, impinge on this, might affect this. But those are, at a basic level, they're a spiritual issue, and it was part of God's requirement to Israel. Now, many people who read Deuteronomy and other books in the law will often get stuck on verses that appear to make little or no sense whatsoever. So if I say uh, God requires um, morality, and you say, well, yeah, that makes sense, or God speaks to something that in our mind makes sense, and then there's these other things, and it's like, why in the world is that in the law? Now, there are elements of the law, the rules God gave Israel, that, that we would say today 
were primarily meant as a spiritual example of something, a cue to something. But these kinds of things, I'll mention several here, these kinds of requirements in the law also had the effect of isolating Israel from the nations. Now you remember, God told Israel, you're going to be you, Israel, you're my special treasure, you're my covenant people. Remember that to be holy means to be set apart. Israel was always meant as a nation to be singular. They were, they were not to assimilate with the nation. The nations could come to Israel. Israel could not go out and join the nations. They would lose that status of singularly devoted to God in that land of promise. So some of these isolate Israel. And you know today, still, this is 3,500 years later, you can usually still identify a Jewish community today, and it's from elements like this from the law of Moses. So here's just some examples. So if you look in Deuteronomy 14, verses 3 through 21, God told Israel what kind of animals they could and could not eat. They could and could not eat. Now, if you were talking about livestock kinds of animals, it would be the animal had to chew the cud and it had to have a split hoof. So deer qualifies cattle, sheep, goats, but pigs don't. Pigs have a split hoof, but they don't chew the cud. So pigs are out. Sorry. If you're pulling something out of the water that you want to eat, it has to have fins and scales. That is, you couldn't eat lobster if you were a Jew. It doesn't have fins and scales. Among fowl, you couldn't eat any bird that, that was any, had any kind of quality of being a carrion bird that ate other critters that were dead. You couldn't eat anything like that either. Now, do you think, were those animals that God created, were they somehow unholy? Did, did God make a mistake in creation? You know what I mean? And in fact, when you, when you read this in context, God says he uses strong language like it's an abomination to eat that thing. And you're like, well, is that the thing itself? Or is that because God's making a point here among his covenant people? Now, from Genesis, we know that when God created life on the earth, he looked at everything he made and he said, it is very good. There's nothing wrong with those animals. They are what God intended them to be. In Mark 7, 19, remember too, by the way, that Mark, we assume, is Peter's version of the gospel, says Jesus declared all foods to be clean. Peter, who informed Mark, as we understand, for that gospel, Peter is the one in Acts 10 and 11, it was Peter in Acts 10, he's on a roof and he's praying, and what happens? Lo and behold, a sheet drops from heaven, it's filled with unclean animals in this image. And God says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Pete complains, he's a law-abiding, faithful Jew. He tells God, Lord, nothing unclean has ever passed my lips. I can't do this. And God says, what God has declared to be clean, don't you call unholy. Now, we know in the context of Acts that God is preparing Peter to be able to go to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, and that God's letting Peter know, I'm calling the Gentiles clean. They can hear the gospel. You can go into that house, and you're going to be okay. But he does so in the context of unclean foods, which was right out of the law of Moses. And again, from Mark, we know food, it's not that animal as a food issue. That's not the issue. God was making a different point. Food laws weren't ultimately about something God created being deficient, but they were symbolic 
of ritual purity, and they maintained Israel, still do today, as a distinct people. If you look at Deuteronomy 22, verses 9 through 11, in the arena of agriculture, God said, don't plant the same area with two kinds of plants. Don't plant uh, a grassy crop and a tall crop, like uh, corn, for instance, together. Uh, don't team up different species of animals when you plow. Now, guys, on all of these things, we can infer all kinds of spiritual lessons, okay? But you can make a donkey and a cow plow together. It does work. And in the Middle East today, you can still go and see different species of animals bound together working. Now, we don't say it's the best thing, but it's not like it won't work. It works. Uh, don't mix materials when making your clothing. You know, most of us in here would lose our clothes today. If we followed this, you know, in their time it was wool and linen, but you couldn't wear your synthetic combination of polyester and cotton or my work pants or whatever. That would all be outlawed under the law. Now, at a symbolic level at least, I think God was saying something like this. Let a thing be fully and only what it really is. So here's a wheat field. It's a wheat field. It's only a wheat field. There's nothing else mixed with it. Your clothing, it really is what it should be. It's, it's linen or it's wool, but it's not this mixture. Singularly, remember holiness is being singularly who and what God calls us to be. It at least inferred that, but it also kept Israel isolated from the people groups. And on that note, Deuteronomy 23, verses 1 through 7, when Israel worshipped as a covenant community, Ammonites and Moabites and a small list of others could not join in the corporate worship. The use of the term there, the assembly of Israel, the best use I think of that or understanding is this was Israel gathered to worship Yahweh. It wasn't that they couldn't live within the geographical boundary of Israel, but they couldn't come together with fellow Jews or non-Jews. They couldn't come together because it was a mixed multitude. And God said, the group that worships me must be pure. And that even went down to the, to the level of who was worshiping together. If you look at Deuteronomy 28, verses 9 and 10, this is as sort of as Deuteronomy is winding down. You get into the blessing and cursing passages. And in that context, God said this, The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, and all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord. You're going to be holy to God himself. Everyone's going to know you belong to the Lord. They're going to see it in the way you live. Your covenant observance is going to mark you out as Yahweh's, and everyone will know you're his and he's yours. Now, to bring this closer to home, you and I don't live under the law of Moses. We've talked about this routinely, but it probably bears repeating. You can't live under the law of Moses as far as God's concerned because it was a covenant that has been superseded. When we talk about the new covenant, and Kent will lead us later in the Lord's Supper, we are remembering the new covenant instituted by Jesus in his blood. The old covenant is not in force. It's impossible to be in force. Elements within the law or the covenant are moral realities that were true before the law, true under the law, true today as well. But you can't live under that covenant. We are in the age of the church. We're living under the new covenant. And God now, it's not Jews only, right? It's people from every race, tribe, tongue, kindred, every culture group is being called out to Christ to be members of his body, the church. 
But just like Israel, and in fact, we could probably say more so, God's call to his people and the church is to be holy. It's to be holy. Just as Israel was called to holiness, we are too. And we are called to live up to holiness, living it out of the holiness that is already ours in Christ. There are probably few things more important than this concept related to believers and our sanctification. Um, Sometimes Christians are no better off than a Jew living under the law. We are trying to maintain some form of observance whereby God will accept us. That we will perform at some satisfactory level. We'll feel okay about ourselves. God will think we're okay. And that is absolutely foreign to the whole concept of the gospel. So listen to these verses. I'm going to read several. I want to make the point. As believers in Jesus, and these are only true of those that the Bible describes as being in Christ. So if I've trusted Christ to save me from my sins, I get it, Lord, I'm deficient. Jesus died for the sins of the world. Jesus died for me. Jesus save me. That's me. These verses apply to me. If I've never come to that point where I know Jesus died for my sins, these things are probably not true in that situation. This is only true of Christians, those who know Jesus as Savior. Paul writes to the Colossians. This is Colossians 1.21. Listen to your past. You were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were doing evil deeds, he says. Your past. You were unholy. You were, you were away from God. He says, now he, God, has reconciled you in Christ's body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. This holiness we have is because we have Christ. This has nothing to do with what we work up. It is nothing we can produce. Christians start holy by our very nature, by rebirth, by the life of Christ within us. This is Colossians 3 verse 12. We are God's chosen ones. We are, we are, we are holy and loved. We are holy and loved. That's our starting point. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are by identity. Again, this isn't what we do. This is what we are because Christ is in us and we are in Christ. Romans 3 24, I'm bringing in the language of justification here. Paul writes there, justified by His grace, God's grace, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. When we say someone is justified, when you read passages in the New Testament that you're just or God has justified you or we are righteous, it means standing before a holy, perfectly holy God who knows everything as it is, He can look at us and say, you are altogether what you should be. You are nothing that you shouldn't be. All of this is because we're in Christ and Christ is in us. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, when Paul writes, and this is a typical greeting, but when he writes to the church at Corinth, he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now guys, the word there in the Greek is the same. Sanctified means holy, called to be holy ones. You are holy, and God's calling on your life was to be holy ones. Verse 30 in that same chapter Christ Jesus became to us. 
This is what Christ is to us as a believer. Christ became to us wisdom from God. Christ is my wisdom. Christ became to us righteousness from God. That's perfect standing before God. Christ became to us sanctification. That's holiness and redemption. That's all ours in Christ. We don't make this. God gives it to us in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.17, God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We are God's temple. We are holy. We start, as believers in Jesus, we start holy. Our call then is to live out the holy status we already have. Christians sin and, and probably all of us have had this experience. You know, when Paul writes Romans 7 and 8, he describes this this time, this experience, you know, he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that's what I'm doing. And Christians sin. And when we sin, and particularly when we're ignoring the Spirit and the Word and the fellowship of other believers, and we're continuing in some sin because we want it, at the time at least, it's, it's what we want, so we're doing it. But we end up where Paul ended up, at the end of Romans 7 and then the beginning of Romans 8, do you remember what Paul cries out when he's going through this experience? This internal turmoil, this internal warfare? Because his old sinful self, it'll never do anything but sin. But his new Christ life never does sin, can't sin, loves righteousness, wants to be holy, is holy. And I've got the Holy Spirit. Remember Paul cries out, wretched man that I am. It's like, I hate what's going on. I hate this conflict inside because I am holy in Christ. But I've got sin that I'm choosing to operate in and I'm in conflict and I hate it. And then he says, thanks be to God because in Christ, I've got a solution to that internal warfare and conflict. So we start holy and we're called to live out that holiness. Now, Colossians 3 describes this process of holiness as a process, not as, the, not as the institutional, foundational, identification kind of holiness we have in Christ, but this is the holiness that we are to walk out, that we're to practice. He talks about it as taking something off and putting something on. So you know, uh, when I did a wedding not long ago, I was working in the yard, and I was stinky, and I was smelly, and I was sweaty, and I was dirty. So I came in and I took off those grubby, dirty, smelly, stinky clothes, and I showered, and I put my deodorant on, and then I got my nice suit on. And think of that imagery here in Colossians 3. So on the practical level of holiness, Paul says, put to death, that's put off, that's get rid of. Take those old smelly clothes off, put to death, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality. He says, put it off. Take that off. Don't wear that. Impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. We might call these gross sins obvious sins. Hey, all that immorality stuff, that wicked stuff you know is wrong, put it off. Don't do it. But he continues and he says, put away anger. Put away wrath. Take off malice, that impulse for evil towards others. Put off, take off slander, the way you're talking about other people. 
obscene talk. He says, don't lie. So practically, I'm taking some clothing off. And then you get to verse 10 and he says, now put on the new self. What does that look like? Well, here he says, you can go to Galatians 5, think about the fruits of the Spirit. You can go to 2 Peter 1 to talk about the qualities that are meant to be ours. But here it's in this context, compassionate hearts. What is holiness? When I put on holiness, what does that look like? Compassion for others. Kindness, that's horizontal, kindness towards others. Humility, not thinking more highly of myself than I should. Meekness, meekness means I'm not grabbing stuff for myself. I don't have to have my way. I can bless you and be glad about it. And patience or long-suffering. So I'm putting off those old sinful and holy aspects of my life, and I'm putting on Christ, taking off the grubby gloves, uh, clothes, putting on that new suit. God means for us to live holy lives, and we need to aim high towards holiness. We need to be primed. We need to think about our affections to reject, to be ruthless with the temptations that come up. And when we sin, we do sin, we will sin, then we confess that sin to God and He cleanses us. I want to wind down with this verse and this imagery. If Jesus took a bride, Jesus is holy and perfect, what would she need to be? She'd need to be holy and perfect, wouldn't she? Ephesians 5 is one of the family codes in the New Testament. And typically, we, you're, you're talking to people about this at weddings, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 3. Uh, you're talking to people at weddings or when you talk to couples, hey, this is the role God has for us. But remember, the context is primarily here in Ephesians 5. It's Christ and the church. Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. That's crucifixion. That's the cross. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus die on the cross for the church? That, for this purpose, he might sanctify her. He might make the church holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Probably the best understanding for that is having embraced the truth of the gospel. I've been cleansed in Christ. So that, for this purpose, he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what God's doing in the earth today. That's what God's doing in Lion and Lamb. It's what he's doing in your life and mine. God is preparing a bride for his son. The father is presenting to his son the bride that will be tailor-made, the perfect fit for Jesus. And she, we, will be perfectly holy. We'll be everything we should be, nothing we shouldn't be. We'll be a fit for Jesus. As those in the church, we are the bride God the Father is giving the Lord Jesus. He is the perfect groom, and he needs a perfect bride, a holy companion. One of the things I love, Richard mentioned the return of Christ before. We all don't have to have the same theology on this, on when and the the order of one thing and another. But one of the things that's supposed to engage our affections and our hearts when we think about Jesus coming and calling us to himself, we're supposed to have this thought of my gaze is on Christ and when he comes, I want to be ready like a bride waiting for the bridegroom. 
And it, and it says that has a purifying effect on my life. It helps me live holy if I think about Jesus' call and my joining with him and I see him. And this is the thing. This is the exciting thing. When we see Jesus as he is, Scripture says we will be like him. As long as we're in these bodies, these, these are sin and death bodies and they're going to go the way of the earth. But resurrection body, when we see Christ, resurrection body, no sinful element left behind, we'll be like Christ fully in that we'll be everything God means us to be. Nothing we shouldn't be. We will be holy. We'll be a fit bride for Christ. It'll be a, a hallelujah, amen, angel chorus time when that happens. But if our affections are set there, it has this great sanctifying, holy effect on us because it sets our affections on Christ. I want to do something we don't usually do at this time right now. I just want to take a moment. We'll close our eyes. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand. I just want to take a moment. If there's something, and for most of us there almost always is, what's the unholy element in my life that I should just confess and give to God now? What is that? You know, what, what has God pricked my conscience on? What has the Spirit been pointing out to me? Uh, Father, just make clear to us that thing that you want us to give to you, that unholy element of life that keeps us from closer relationship with you. And you can just in your own heart, your own mind, in your own prayer language to God, just give that to God. Take a moment to do that. Father, thanks that in love Jesus gave his life for us. We who were unholy, spiritually filthy, Lord, and yet your love prevailed. Jesus' blood covers our sin so that you can look at us and see the very glory, the very nature, the very life, the very righteousness of Christ. We thank you that Jesus has dressed us up in holy robes and that one day we will be all that you mean us to be. Lord, until then, help us. Help us to aspire to holiness. Help us to remember Jesus coming and calling us. Help us to be ready like the bride waiting for her groom. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, would you stand with me? And let's, uh, as the worship team comes up, let's read together from 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20.